0: So we are continuing and ending actually today our brief little series where we looked began looking at the ascension of Christ and then this is our second of two sermons talking about Pentecost and I want to read for you a few verses from the book of Acts as we consider this great event this morning. Here's what the word of God says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's what we've been talking about. Jesus ascended to the throne in heaven and he began building the kingdom of God. So before he rises, he shares with his disciples more about the kingdom. And I mentioned this last week. We think of that vision that Daniel saw. We we imagine Jesus ascending into heaven and and all the host of the angels gathering around and proclaiming glory to Jesus as he takes his throne. But let's turn and look at the people of the earth at the time. What kind of kingdom is this? 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose to heaven... Was he reigning over nations and tribes and tongues and ethnicities that said, Hail King Jesus, praise the Son of God, we are so thrilled that the Son of God has come? No. There were 12, and if you look a little bit later in Acts 1, about 120 people. Who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the King? The rest of the world was a mess. Have you seen *It's a Wonderful Life*? I know it's not Christmas time, but you know, in that movie, remember the uh, the home that the Bailey's after they got married that they went to live in, George and Mary. It's not exactly a honeymoon suite. Right? It's not exactly the, the kind of home you long for. The, uh, the windows are all broken. The, the doors are all shattered. The, the, there's holes in the floor. It starts raining, and rain is pouring in because there, there's holes in the roof. It, it, it's, it's a condemned house, basically. And this is how they begin their life together as a married couple. Jesus' kingdom we, that he inherited was kind of like that just a mess of people who wanted very little to do with him. Now, last week, I I'm quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, and I realized that you all don't know the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to review a couple things from the Sermon on the Mount for you that give us a little glimpse as to what Jesus, what, what kind of people Jesus was talking to when he came on the scene. If you remember the beginning of the Beatitudes, do you all know the Beatitudes? Can I name one? Blessed are the, and then all trails off, yeah. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember that one? Jesus showed up, and he didn't come to a people that were thriving and had reached some kind of elite status. His very first pronouncement in that sermon was, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, if you back up a few verses, the kind of people that were gathered around Jesus at that time, it said they were bringing out the sick the weak, those with great pains and diseases, and they were demon-possessed, they were suffering all kinds of, of, of pain and oppression, and these are the ones coming to Jesus, and he looks at this crowd, and he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on, after a few more blessings, and he says, I need to correct some of your thinking. You've been told, thou shalt not commit murder. That's good. But I'm saying to you, don't even hate your brother. Don't say the words, you fool. Don't lash out at someone and say, you good for nothing, you empty-headed, dot, dot, dot. Apparently, the law required you don't murder somebody, but they didn't make a big deal of hating somebody in your heart and saying unkind things. Jesus had to address this with the people who had gathered in front of him. He said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's good not to do that. But I say to you, if you even look on someone with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and now you can't keep your eyes off of him or her. That's bad. Apparently, he was talking to a group of people who were aware of the letter of God's law there, but they didn't put a lot of attention on the heart attitude of being pure inside, of treating your wife and other women with respect. And Jesus had to teach them that. He was talking to a group of people who treated divorce like, whatever, whenever, go for it. As long as you send it away, send her away with the right paperwork, you can walk away from your marriage whenever you want to. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Jesus said, you you can't do that. If you just send your wife away, you're causing her to commit adultery. And if you remarry, you're committing adultery. Be faithful to your wife. Work through issues Don't just enjoy the honeymoon period and then when you're not happy anymore, send her packing. Jesus had to to teach these people beyond just the superficial meaning of God's Old Testament law. He goes on. He says, you have heard it said to take oaths according to all of these standards. and, And you might take an oath based on the temple or on the gold or on the king or whatever it says. Be done with all of that. Be the kind of people that your yes means yes. And your no means no. Be the kind of people that don't have to sign the right kind of contract to be held to your word, but when you say something, you mean it. Have the heart attitude where your character and your integrity are such that you say what you mean and mean what you say, and you keep your commitments. But he wasn't talking to a group of people who valued being a man of your word or a woman of your word. He said, you've heard it said, and again, he quotes straight from the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm telling you, don't treat other people that way. Don't demand justice when you think you're being treated poorly. Don't wish Ill on others when they treat you with injustice. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the pagans do. If you're going to be people in the kingdom, he says, you're different. Closely related, the very next one he says, you have heard, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That is not a direct quote from the old covenant law. But God did set up Israel as hostile toward their enemies, that's true. So it's at least implied in some cases. But Jesus says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, we do not hate our enemies. We love our enemies. And if someone comes and slaps you on the face, you turn them the other cheek. Someone wants to take your shirt, you say, here, you can have my coat as well. We're not like the world, Jesus says, who responds in kind when we're mistreated." Now, the very fact that Jesus had to address these things gives us some indication of the people he was talking to and what mattered to them and what they valued and what they were taught and what they believed and how they acted. And it gets worse. Go back to the beginning of the story when Jesus was born. The king of the Jews was a man named Herod. And he got word that the Messiah King had been born. And he goes and calls on the theologians and says, where does the scripture say this Messiah King will be born? And he sends out an army to slaughter all the boys under two years of age. We're familiar with that story, but don't let your heart be hardened to the wickedness of that. I mean, think about all the newborns we have just in this gathering today. We saw the Bex baby up on the screen. Can you imagine being in a a nation where we would treat babies that way? We kind of can, can't we? This is how Jesus' life started, a king slaughtering babies. And then we get to the end of the story, and those same class of theologians are clamoring for his his death, his execution. They're trumping up charges. They're going to find anything that might stick and throwing it at him, trying to get him considered guilty enough to be crucified. And this is God's people. Everything I just said, these are the people of God. These are the people who had the word of God, people who knew the truth. And then you think about the pagan governor, Pilate, as we talked about extensively in uh, John, three times he declared Jesus innocent of any wrongdoing and still put him on the cross. Talk about injustice. And then you go out from there to all the surrounding nations, and everywhere you look, there's idolatry, sexual immorality, great violence, wickedness, pride, arrogance, everything you can imagine. And this is the kingdom that Jesus inherited. Hey, son, look at what I've given to you. If it were me, I'd be like, um, <laughs> no thanks. So what did Jesus do about it? He said, I'm gonna fix this. Here's what he said to his disciples. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus inherits the condemned building as his kingdom, but he says, I'm not going to leave it this way. I'm going to start with just one little thing, I'm going to start repairing the floorboards. Then I'm going to put up new windows. And then I'm going to repair the walls. I'm going to fix the stairs so you can go up the stairs. I'm going to start on the second story. And little by little, bit by bit, he starts creating a wonderful, glorious mansion. He takes these 12 men, and on the day of Pentecost, he fills them with his Holy Spirit. He pours out the Spirit of God upon them and says, go, go. And tell other people about me. And they went. And on that first day, 3,000 people responded. A little bit later, thousands more respond. And for two millennia now, people have gone out with the gospel, calling people to faith in Jesus, to repent of their sins, and every single person who does that is filled with God's Spirit. And God's Spirit begins the transformation in the individual heart. We call this the fruit of the Spirit. And again, any of you who are raised in the church, you're so familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. You've got your catchy little songs to sing. I should invite Sophie up to sing the coconut song, no? The Holy Spirit's not a, what is it, the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut? Knock on your head. It's so familiar to us if we grew up in Sunday school, but we forget this is what the Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is creating in you love. Are you more loving than you were five years ago? If the Holy Spirit of God is in you, you are. Because that's what He's doing, He's changing you. Do you have more joy than you had six years ago? You should. The Holy Spirit is powerful. He has the ability to change us, and he's working in our hearts. Peace, we've been talking a lot about peace lately. Where do we get the peace of the kingdom of God? By the Holy Spirit. We saw this last week. This is the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace. The Spirit changes us where we don't want to fight with each other. We don't want to tear other people down. We want to get along. We want to be friends. We want to be reconciled. Patience. I know none of us have mastered patience. Never heard anybody say, got that one down. Never have to worry about that again. If you say that, watch out. (laughs) God will test you. But the Spirit of God is working patience in us. Are you more patient than you were two years ago? You should be. And you should be more patient two years from now than you are today, because the Holy Spirit is working and making you into something beautiful in His kingdom. Kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Mimicity, besides self-control. Oh, self-control. If there's one sin that almost encapsulates all the others, it seems like it's self control. And we struggle with that. But we are growing in that because the Spirit of God is bearing fruit and He is giving us more and more self control. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that there is some temptation that you. Cannot overcome. That's the devil speaking. He wants you to feel enslaved. He wants you to be hopeless. He wants you to think you can't get any better. You are going to be the broken window until glory. You just got to hang on and survive, but you are a broken window. That's a lie from the pit. I made the mistake yesterday of of sort of listening into a conversation between my wife and my, my daughter, and only heard part of the conversation, and I jumped all over something that was theologically incorrect. And right I was principal, I missed part of the context, would have changed it. But here's the thing that got my attention. Chris is reading a book, and this teacher is talking about how the heart is deceitful above all things. You've heard that, right? It's in the Bible, in fact. If you are a Christian, that is not true of you. When that statement was made in the Old Testament, the prophet was talking to apostate Israel. We are not apostate Israel. The whole point of the new covenant is God has taken out that old heart that was wicked, desperately wicked, and deceitful, and easily deceived and hated people and hated God. God has taken that heart out of us and replaced it with a new heart by the power of his spirit. And that old man is dead, praise the Lord. And we have a new heart that now wants to please God. Remember Ephesians 2? Paul says to the church there, you were Dead in your sins and trespasses, but God made you alive. And when He put a new spirit in you, when He gave you a new heart, did He replace your old wicked heart with another evil wicked heart? That is not an upgrade. Right? You go from Windows 10 to Windows 9, well, that's a bad analogy. Any Windows analogy is a bad analogy. That's all evil heart. You need the new heart. You need the Mac OS. Something that works. <laughs> I just lost half of you. Like, I'm not listening to another word he says. It's a new operating system. It's different. Now, we're in process. It doesn't mean we don't have temptations. Of course we have temptations but we have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome those temptations. Think about the people in this room, the people that you know well, the people in your small groups. Are we the kind of people around here that say, no, no, you're not allowed to murder, but you go ahead and just let the words fly. Call people fools and idiots and just let it out. Like, rip them apart with your words. It's okay, hey, as long as you don't murder them, you can say whatever you want to them. Is that, is that, is that who we are? Of course not are we the kind of people that says as long as you don't commit the physical act of adultery it doesn't matter what you think about it doesn't matter where your eyes go it doesn't matter what you desire of course not we say no they're, they're all it's all wrong if you're married keep your heart on your spouse if you're not married get married or wait are we the kind of people that say you know what? Your spouse just isn't doing it for you anymore. Feel free. Send them, all, send them on the way. Of course not. We work hard. We come alongside one another and say, you got to keep working on this. You're a picture of Christ in the church. Keep striving for a marriage that is a good picture. And we call each other out and we encourage and We pray for them and, and we wrestle with it together so they'll stay faithful to one another and become better. Are we the kind of people that say, go ahead, hate your enemies? Yes, go demand justice for every apparent injustice that you experience. Be ruthless. Hey, if they did it to you, you go do it to them. We're we're behind you. We'll, We'll applaud you. No, that's not who we are because that's not who our king is. What would happen to mankind if Jesus treated his enemies the way his enemies treated him? If he rose to his throne and said, all right, now that I have all the authority in heaven and earth, I'm going to unload my justice. We wouldn't be sitting here right now because the human race would have been wiped out 2,000 years ago. But that's not what he did. He said, that's what the unbelievers do. That's what the pagans do. That's what the the Gentiles do. They demand their rights and turn their hate on anyone who offends them. Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom says, I'm going to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. Merciful. I'm going to be gracious as my Father in heaven is gracious. My kingdom, Jesus says, is righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. We look at our world this past week or two or three, and we just think, oh, on every level, this is bad. It's all bad. At least I do. And it's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to think we really are feeling the breeze as it blows by. We're in a handbasket. Some of you will get that later on and chuckle. Appreciated Bob's word this morning in their Sunday seminar. So much of what we're seeing right now, well, those of you older than me saw it in the 60s. And we've seen it before, and we'll probably see it again. Lots of similarities, lots of parallels. And it's easy to become very discouraged and pessimistic and say, oh, yep, we just gotta hang on until Jesus comes back. Just hang on. The enemy's winning. The enemy's tearing this world apart. He's winning. That's not true. Jesus is reigning and he's building his kingdom. And he said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my kingdom. I will build my church. And there are millions of people right now worshiping his name, who love peace, who love righteousness, people who are filled with joy, who are saying, we want to see a better world because of King Jesus. We're not all under the power and influence of the devil. The kingdom of light has come upon the world. And it's bigger than it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus started this renovation project. Again, it was a dump. It's not a dump anymore. It's getting better. There's more work to be done for sure. But think about how many people love righteousness because of Jesus. Think about how many people the Spirit of God is filling today, and we're loving, and joyful, and peaceful, and gentle, and all of those. How are we going to make a difference in this world today? By doing what Jesus started doing 2,000 years ago we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call people to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then they too will be filled with God's spirit and he will begin the renovation project in their heart. And they will no longer be out there causing trouble. They will be out there causing peace. And as the spirit of God builds the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Christ is expanded, evil will be less that's our power. That's what we have. Now, of course, there's a, there, there's a, there are more discussions to be had. As Americans, we can go to the voting booth, and we should. And we will continue to talk more about that as we get closer to election time. But the heart of true change in the world is through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. And that is something we all can do. You're not going to march down to Washington, you and me, we're not going to march down there and change anything. But you can bring the gospel to the person who lives across the street from you. And I don't mean that as a political statement against marches. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even addressing that today. I'm simply saying we know the power for change is in the gospel. The Spirit of God was poured out into a fallen world that was even more fallen than the one we live in. And He began changing that world. And until the day that that He descends again and and establishes his His eternal kingdom, we are the agents of change through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And He's building His kingdom. We have to be looking for opportunities to preach the gospel and understanding this is where transformation happens. We are not people who love violence. We are not people who love injustice. We're not people who applaud any of that stuff from any angle. We are people who love Jesus and his righteousness and we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And let him deal the kingdom of darkness. Now maybe there's one more piece of this that I need to speak to as I think about and talk about the transformation that's taking place. Come on up music team. If you got your lunchable on the way in, not a fan. But it's what we have right now. But I want you to look past the container and look toward what it represents. Some of you are opening it ahead of me. If you get grape juice on yourself, that's your fault. I was going to guide you through not getting grape grape juice on yourself, but When you pop it open, pressure will likely stain your shirt, so be careful. And if you want to all put it up to your mouth when you open it, no one's going to judge you. The elements are not the most important thing, but what this represents is the most important thing. All the transformation I've been talking about is true, but another truth is we all came to Christ as that dump. We were all the condemned house. We were all in that kingdom that hated Jesus and everything he stood for. So, though we are in the process of transformation, we must always be humble because we didn't start out that way and we didn't get there on our own. He gave us new birth, He gave us the Spirit. And I ask you the rhetorical questions, are you more righteous than you were five years ago, more joyful, more patient, all those things. And it's very easy for us to look back and say, I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe, and we start doubting. And I want to remind you of where it all began for you and for me. It all began with us admitting I'm the condemned house. I'm the dump. I'm the kingdom that Jesus should not want. And Jesus said, yes, but I've taken care of that. Jesus came to the cross and died because we were the dump. You can tweet that if you want. And he's already declared us the glorious mansion. In his eyes, we're already the glorious mansion. We are the kingdom. We're beautiful and spotless. Now, he's in the process of making us that, but but he declared us that way. He saw us as the finished product before he ever started the renovation. And the only reason he could do that is because he took on us all of that dumpiness on himself and suffered the destruction of the structure that should have been ours. And that's what's represented in this little packet. So take the top off and grab the wafer and hold it with me. And take a look at it. There's no substance here, really. Certainly not going to keep you from getting hungry. But what this represents... Is the body of Jesus Christ broken for you? And he made you whole inside and out. So as we eat together, no longer consider yourself the condemned building. See yourself as the glorious castle worthy of Jesus Christ. Let's eat together. Now, take the top off the cup. And in this little cup, there is no way you won't be thirsty again. In fact, grape juice always makes me more thirsty. But what it represents. Jesus said, if you drink my blood, you will never thirst again. He has satisfied our deepest need, our greatest longing. We are pure. We are righteous. We are holy. Declared so by the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And Whatever your past sins, way back last week, ten minutes ago, Christ died for that sin. And he declares you Holy. Let's drink together and remember that, Lord Jesus. We have just one response, and that is thank you, Lord. As we look out at the wickedness in our midst from every angle, there, there there's so many different examples. We come and we say, Lord, it's only by your grace and by the power of your spirit that we're not joining in the wickedness. It's only by your grace that we are not condemned because of our own wickedness, but we are righteous in your sight. So we say thank you. And we ask you to keep changing us and transforming us and making us worthy of the name of Christ. Or the world needs to see true righteousness. The world needs to see true peace. The world needs to see true joy. The world needs to see the kingdom that transcends the lies and the abuse and the oppression and the violence and racism. It needs to see Jesus. You've called us to show you to the world. Father, I am, I am sort of jealous of our brother Ron. He is there in your presence right now, and he, he doesn't have to fight the fight anymore. He's done with it. He's resting in your goodness. And we thank you for him. We thank you for the example. What a faithful man for so many decades of serving your people, loving others. For those of us who are not yet there, you have given us the command to continue to fight the good fight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful to the end, not to ideologies, not to worldly concerns, but faithful to Jesus Christ, our King. In name I pray, amen.